Well, good morning, everyone. Well, this is going to be a somewhat challenging lesson. Um, like I said earlier, um, I'd been preparing to teach on something else this week, on uh, the parable of the seed and the sower. And um, Brandon was referring to a text I sent with a scripture reading that was a different scripture reading while I was still trying to figure out how to communicate things with um, some things that have been very heavy uh, on my heart, particularly related to how things are going with, with Stephen. Um, the scripture that Brandon was referencing was when Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword to set father against son, son against father, and the man's enemies will be the uh, people of his own, the members of his own household. And that's certainly true with Stephen right now. Um, Hebrews 13, verse 3, we're going to come back to that verse at the end of the lesson. Uh, it just says, Remember those in prison as though in prison with, with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you also are members of the body. And 1 Corinthians 12:26 says, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Um, the point of this lesson is not for me to just talk about how the situation with Stephen has made me feel, but there are things in this lesson that I've been planning to teach uh, farther in the future because I think this is a challenging time with the church here. There's just a lot of afflictions that members are suffering. There's a lot of trials with temptation that members are suffering to overcome. And then Stephen and the situation with Stephen was like something very heavy stacked on top of a lot of heaviness that was already there. Um, and if anyone doesn't know, so Stephen has some mental disabilities that put him in a position where he's very dependent on his parents. They have legal guardianship and custody of Stephen, even though he's in his 50s. Um, but as many of you know, Stephen has full mental awareness and understanding to know the truth and to seek the truth. Um, but his parents are very aggressively against his decisions to follow the Lord. Um, and yesterday, uh, his dad and I had an interaction where that really reached its full climax. Um, and so the, the hard thing is, the situation with Stephen, I've never faced a situation like quite like it before. There's a lot of very unusual factors involved. And it just put me in a position of just feeling completely helpless, not having any easy answer for what to do. And talking to an older brother, there were some good things that he suggested, but still there's just no easy answer in a situation like that. And I think a lot of us are in situations where there aren't easy answers um, to our problems, where there isn't any clear, immediate relief. Um, so the title of this lesson is Finding Hope When Hopeless and Joy When Helpless. It's just going to be a very simple lesson. Um, we're going to be starting in Isaiah 40, and I think there's, there's a great power in our weakness when it forces us into a position where the only thing that we can really cling to is who we know God is. 
And I think Isaiah chapter 40 floods us with great and reverent and very lofty thoughts about the glory of who God is in ways that are very vital in situations like what Stephen is facing, responding to what Stephen is facing, and what others are facing in the congregation here as well. Um, This section of Isaiah, there's been a lot of things that God has said about his judgments and restoration that was going to come in the future. And immediately before this, there was kind of an illustration of a lot of these things, a living illustration, where Jerusalem, the city, was being besieged by the army of the Assyrians. The Assyrians had already destroyed the entire northern tribe of Israel. They had already taken the majority of the Judean region and the cities in that region. And Hezekiah, when the Assyrians came to Jerusalem to siege the city, he was forced into a position of complete helplessness. Um, He had tried other methods in the past of deliverance and nothing had, uh, had helped. And the only thing he could do anymore was just pray and desperately plead that God would act for his own namesake. And God conquered an enemy that Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem could not conquer. And that swings the book of Isaiah into a context that focuses on deliverance and how God is able to accomplish deliverance when people are helpless, when there's nothing that we can do, when we don't understand how it could even happen. We're going to start in verse 9. And I want you to focus on the phrase at the end of verse 9, where Zion, who had suffered great afflictions, um, is to tell the cities of Judah, here is your God. I try to make it through the lesson um, as best I can. Uh, verse 9 through 17. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and give him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So I just really want to read this in one more section of the chapter and just affirm some things that I think are very emboldening and encouraging We meditate on who God is when we're helpless. And this is how God gives hope to the hopeless. How God renews hope when it's being lost, right? 
God sees things in a way that we don't. Um, you know, Isaiah and Hezekiah were in Jerusalem and the Assyrians were besieging it. And the nation from this point forward were going to be suffering obstacles that would seem insurmountable, obstacles that no single person was going to be able to solve. And they were just going to have to wait for God to fulfill his promises while they helplessly just serve God quietly in faith that he will do what he promised. When we only see short-term obstacles, God is looking at long-term solutions. There are things that to us seem insurmountable. There are obstacles that we can't overcome and that our wisdom can't solve, that no number of people can resolve. There are problems that just we can't solve or figure out. But if you look at verse 17, this is one of my favorite statements that's ever made in the Old Testament, where it says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. God is not intimidated by the things that intimidate us. God is not overwhelmed by the forces that overwhelm us. God is also not defeated by the things that defeat us or make us feel defeated, right? Temptations that overcome us, people that intimidate us, insecurities we may have that are drawn out through interactions. God is not defeated or overcome by those things and those obstacles that, again, the nations for the nation of Israel, they would have seemed like this insurmountable obstacle, right? Babylon was an obstacle that they were going to be defeated and there was nothing they could do about that. They were going to be under the greater dominion of the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. There was nothing they could do about that. And all of these nations were going to look like an obstacle that Israel had no power to resolve. It was a mountain that was too high to cross. It couldn't be seen past. But again, God was not intimidated. God was not overcome. And God was not being... Um, God's purpose was not being stopped or thwarted by that. Let's look at verses 18 through 31 and just continue to see these things. And just wanted to put in your mind before we read this, one of the greatest issues of our faith is we just don't give God enough credit. We just don't see how great God is. We don't see the power that God has. We don't see things from the perspective that God sees these things from. And so a huge work of our faith is just learning to give God the credit that he deserves simply by nature of who he is. Verse 18 through 31. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heaven like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, 
and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the power and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Again, God sees what we don't see. God can do what we cannot do. He can fight battles that we can't fight. And he has wisdom that we don't have. You know, in verse 18 through 20, he makes what seems like a very silly point. You know, God is obviously not an idol. But again, an issue of faith is so often we treat God as if he's less than he really is. Look at verse 27. Again, Jacob, Israel, the nation that was most precious, most invested in by God, his precious possession, the focus of all his promises. Even they could be in a situation where because of the appearance of their situation could think, well, God's not paying attention. The justice that's due has escaped his mind and I've been forgotten and abandoned. God has not forgotten when it seems like he has or when we think he has. And in verse 23, I think this is really the big thing, is people who have power, who may seem to have power or authority, people who can do things to us that make it seem like we are within their control and we have no control ourselves, God is not intimidated by those people who have power and those, there is no person who has greater power or greater authority than God himself. And what's demonstrated with Israel is when anybody waged war against the people of God, God considered that a battle against him himself. And he was able to fight the battles for his people that they were unable to fight for themselves. Verse 27 again. When we, when we are most tempted to think that God is not concerned for us is when God is most concerned. When his jealousy and the fire of his passion is most strongly burning and has been kindled. Verse 28, he does not become weary or tired. God has strength that we do not have. And God is able to show himself strong when we've run out of strength ourselves. You know, you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's trying to appeal to the Corinthians to understand humility and faith and the power of God. He reflects on a time when he was overwhelmed and helpless. There was this thorn in the flesh that he couldn't escape and he kept praying to God that it would leave. 
And I imagine as an apostle who's trying to be busy preaching and teaching and helping and serving, that it would have seemed like this was, of all things, the greatest hindrance to his purpose and his calling as an apostle. And yet God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. God has strength that we do not have, and he is able to show his strength, most especially when we run out of strength. God is not tired when we've run out of energy. And although God is with us when we hit rock bottom, God is not weary when we are worn out, when our burdens are too heavy for us to bear, when we're stretched so thin it just seems like we have no energy left in us at all to keep going, God still has energy. And God still has energy to give us, to renew us when we're weary. God sees solutions to our problems that we don't see. And he, um, he is able to see what to do when we don't understand what to do. God foresees what we do not anticipate. He prepares for what we are not prepared for. You know, and that's so much the nature of these promises is everything that Israel would end up needing to endure through, God would speak ahead of, the, ahead of time to help the nation to understand God is anticipating every trial, every difficulty, every obstacle, and he is already prepared to equip the nation and use those obstacles for the sake of his promises. And so God foresees everything that we don't foresee. He anticipates what we don't. He prepares for what we are not prepared for. God is not helpless when we are, help when we are helpless. He's not confused and overwhelmed when we are confused and overwhelmed. And God, more than anything, is not discouraged when we are discouraged. God hasn't lost hope when our hope has been taken away from us or when circumstances make us think that there's no longer any, any answer, any way out, any profitable thing to do, or any way that God can rebuild what's been broken. God is not discouraged when we're discouraged. And notice verse 29 again. Who does God give strength to? God specifically chooses to give strength to those who are weary. Who does he give power to? To those who lack might. And I'll read verse 31 again before we go on to the next point. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Not because of who we are or what we are capable of, of, of ourselves or what we've done in the past, but simply because of who God is and how powerful he is despite our weaknesses. The next point I want to make is how Jesus gives joy to the helpless. And I'd like to go to Hebrews chapter 12 for this point. And these things will be very closely connected together. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, there's some things in these statements that I think are so important but so easy to miss. And I think if we see what's being said here, it should embolden and encourage us so much, even when we're suffering inescapable grief and potential discouragement because of our circumstances or the circumstances of others. 
Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. First point I want to make is in verse 2, who for the joy set before him endured endured the cross. What was that joy? You know, there was a time when I would think about that passage, and the joy seemed to me to be the joy of escaping. You know, that Jesus' life was filled with hardships, and so finally, on the other side of the cross, Jesus could escape the misery of the present life and find freedom and rest in heaven and finally be eternally liberated from the hardships of the present. I'd like to put in your mind, though, and try to make the case It was not a joy of escaping. It's actually completely the opposite. That the joy set before Jesus was not escaping the burdens of the present. It was being able to more deeply associate and serve. And it's not just the shame of the cross itself that he despised. We sing a song, kneel at the cross Jesus will meet you there. It's not just that Jesus counted the cost of the cross itself and the, and the suffering of the cross as nothing in view of the glory that would come after. Jesus despised the shame of those who he would meet at the cross. It's the people that would be drawn to the cross. It's the people that he would serve. It's the burdens that he would carry. It's the gates that he would open to the weary and the heavy laden to draw them to God with assurance that God can sympathize. God does understand. And there's no degree of suffering we can ever endure where God is not still standing there with us even when we doubt it or are discouraged and can't see it. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25. And I'd like to make the case that there is an inexpressible joy in being able to suffer, even if not personally, just being able by association to suffer greatly and to grieve greatly even because of being able to be associated with the trials that others are going through in the body, there is a great joy that balances and protects that grief. And again, just with Jesus and the joy of association, not the joy of escaping. Hebrews 11, start in verse 24. And I'd like to make the case that Jesus' joy is a reflection of Moses' decision here. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God 
than to enjoy the, ple- the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know, to fit the language of chapter 12, you might be able to rephrase this, that Moses, for the joy set before him, he endured the humiliation of joining with his Hebrew brethren and despising the shame that would come with it. For he was looking to the reward. When you are trying to serve people, when you are actively trying to sympathize and have compassion, it is not a joy to be disconnected. It is not a joy to be separated. It is not a joy to be disassociated by distance, by feeling, whatever it is. Christ brings a joy into our life. God brings a joy into our life. Where again, there is safety in the joy of associating with burdens rather than being disassociated with them. And Jesus' life was not just about suffering at the cross and then leaving us forever and then watching from the ease of heaven while we just try to work things out on our own. But in verse 3 of chapter 12, We're not just to consider the fact that Jesus did endure, but how? But why? Because just like Isaiah chapter 40, God still was standing with Jesus to provide in accordance with his promises. Even when everybody else had abandoned Jesus, even when nobody else understood, even when nobody else thought that Jesus' suffering could possibly be the fulfillment of these royal, exalted promises they were hanging their hat on. Jesus trusted God. And God provided and vindicated Jesus in the end. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I think we see this actually earlier in the book. That all of this is associated with the role that the Hebrew writer argues we need from Jesus right now as a great high priest in heaven actively serving to meet the needs of God's people. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. And again, with this idea that there is joy in associating and serving, even when there's helplessness and grief that can't be escaped, still there is inexpressible joy by those associations. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And verse 12 is a quotation. Think about Isaiah 40 and how God was describing himself in Isaiah 40, the things that God said he's capable of doing in Isaiah chapter 40, saying, I will proclaim your name To my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but 
he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in everything, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Is God able to come to our aid when there's no easy answer, when there's no easy solution? And is there still joy when in mutual fellowship we are trapped in grief that cannot be escaped? This is the joy that was set before Jesus. Again, not a joy of escaping the burdens of the present or disassociating from the burdens of God's people, but the mystery of the gospel is that through Jesus, God is able to be more invested in people than he ever had been able to before. That people are able to have so much greater assurance of God's sympathy than ever before. That the confidence we can have in those grand statements in Isaiah 40 can be now much more intimately and completely understood and our faith can be more greatly emboldened to put even more trust in those claims that God has made of himself and what he does for his people. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Again, this emphasis that in our trials, in our grief, in our hopelessness, God is drawing us to his throne of grace to find help in our needs. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are times when God is the only one who can help. There are times when situations we face, there's nobody who is going to have the wisdom to solve the situation. There are times when there's nobody who can give any solution. Or even in our physical ailments, there may be no cure, no medicine, no treatment, but we're just trapped in a situation that we're never going to escape until the resurrection. But still in verse 16, God always offers solutions and help and mercy and grace in our time of need. Even when everything in the present and all the wisdom of the present completely fails when everything seems to fall apart all around us there is still a joy that god is able to give in our helplessness and in the grief that we suffer one more passage before we turn to hebrews 13 turn to matthew chapter 26 matthew chapter 26 and just the idea of being able to sympathize with our weaknesses and our struggles in these ways. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 20, 20, 37 and 38, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane took Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he was grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Here was a grief 
Jesus could not escape. And on the cross, Jesus would be trapped. He would be helpless. There would be nothing that he would be able to do because of God's will, that he remained silent in the accusations that were being put against him, that he would bear the cross and crucifixion and humiliation. But look at verse 26. And this is something that, in thinking about this lesson, has been very encouraging to me. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Something that I've overlooked is in verse 26, Jesus knew the joy that was set before him and the suffering that he was about to endure the service that he was about to be equipped to give to those who would would be God's people as a result of his anguish. Jesus, before it happened, blessed the bread. Jesus counted it a blessing to have his body broken before it happened. He gave thanks for the cup before his blood was poured out. He thanked God that his blood would be poured out of his body. He was thankful for his suffering before it happened because he knew that it would encourage people afterward to see the power of God's love, to see how God can meet our deepest needs, to never lose hope and discouragement, and to find that same joy that equipped him to despise the shame of the cross and to stand with God's people in a way that not even Moses could have ever imagined. Hebrews 13, verse 3. So I'd like to read this passage again and just say a brief prayer for Stephen and his situation and the other needs that are here. Ultimately, all of these things encourage us to make a very simple application. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. You know, I think I've thought about Stephen yesterday as a prisoner in his own home and as somebody who is suffering ill-treatment. And so I'd like to just take a moment and just pray that God work in his own wisdom and power to help our brother in his situation. If you'll pray with me for a moment. Father, you've done so many things in your word to show us that your people are indescribably, unthinkably precious to you. That you are able to fight battles that we can't fight. And that there are things that always can seem like obstacles that are impossible to overcome. We beg you to show yourself strong on behalf of our brother Stephen with the persecution that he's enduring, the mistreatment that he's enduring. Just please work out a way where his faith can be strengthened, where there can be some avenue of communication to give our brother strength. Please embolden his faith in these hard situations. Help us, God, to see joy in associating with each other's trials, no matter how heavy, no matter what may be 
endured in our lives. Help us, God, to bear each other's burdens gladly, even when there is grief overwhelming. Help us to look to Jesus and to consider him and to consider his faith and the greatness of his faith as an example for us, not just of his patience and endurance, but of what you provided, what you gave and what you did for him to keep him sustained through his grief and helplessness. Father, bless this church with all the various hardships being endured. Help us to glory in the resurrection and the great hope that exists not just in the next life, but even presently, how you are able to do things that we cannot even imagine or anticipate. Father, we are helpless. There are so many needs. There's such a need for your help, God. And all we can do, like Hezekiah when the Assyrians were sieging the city, all we can do is put our hands up to you and beg you to act for your own namesake, Father, on behalf of your promises, not because of any worthiness of our own, but simply because you demonstrate that you are a powerful and gracious and humble Father and that you strive to meet the needs of your people so that you can show yourself strong on behalf of those who have given their heart to you. Thank you for this church, God, and thank you for the joy that you've given us in our associations. Thank you for the joy of struggling to serve each other and the struggle of building each other up, the struggle of patience with each other. All of these things, God, we still count as a great joy, even when we suffer great grief. We love you, God, and we are so thankful to belong to you. Thank you for who you are and how much of an encouragement it is to know you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, so if there's anything that has been drawn up out of your heart with this lesson, if there's any need that exists in relation to these things in your faith, um, now would be an appropriate and good time while we stand and sing our invitation song.